Great is thy faithfulness. We have the privilege of reading God's word this morning. Would you please take your Bibles and let's open to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 12 through 16. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 832. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. We'll ask the Lord to add his blessing to his word we read this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing this, is pressing on toward the goal. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Thank you, Rick. Well, as is obvious, this is Palm Sunday. What else will be obvious here in a moment is that this is not your typical Palm Sunday message. Then again, not being typical is rather typical with me. But being Palm Sunday, I'm reminded of the story of a little boy who was sick on Palm Sunday and he couldn't go to church and so he stayed home from church with his mother. Well, after the service, the father returned from church holding a palm branch. The little boy was curious, he hadn't seen that before, and he asked, why do you have that palm branch, Dad? Well, you see, son, when Jesus came into town, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, so we, we got palm branches today. And the little boy replied, seriously, the one Sunday I miss is the Sunday that Jesus shows up? <laughs> Well, hopefully, hopefully you have sensed that Jesus has shown up today because he is here, he is in our presence, and will continue to make his presence known as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning. And actually, there is a tie-in to Palm Sunday as we look at these verses. We're going to see in these verses in Philippians a direct parallel to Jesus' life and mission. The sermon title that somewhat gives away our direction for this morning most definitely describes Jesus' passion, which was particularly evident on the first day of Passion Week or Holy Week. The first day of the week that quietly shook the world, the prelude to his passion, the launching of his lordship. The one thing The one thing on the mind of Christ whom we are to emulate is his resolve to glorify his Father in heaven by carrying out the one thing he came to do. What was Jesus' one thing? Mark Buchanan calls it a holy must. A holy must. What must I do? 
We see this holy must throughout Jesus' time walking this earth. Jesus must go through Samaria. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. Jesus must suffer. He lived a holy must. He fixed his eyes on one thing. And even as the crowd sought to make him their earthly king as he rode humbly on a donkey into the streets of Jerusalem, his eyes never left his holy must, his one thing, to be the sin-bearer of the world, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12.2 tells us. And as we saw back in chapter 2 of our study in Philippians, Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus didn't come to be a good teacher, though he was the best. He didn't come to, to, to merely show how to live a good moral life, though he was sinless. Jesus didn't come as this circus performer to impress crowds with his healing, his his power over nature, and his feeding thousands with one boy's lunch, though he did all that and more. He came to satisfy the holy demands of God, turning aside God's wrath that was meant for us and took it on himself, paying the penalty for our sin in full. One thing, his holy must, our Redeemer, our Savior. And Paul, Paul, the writer of this letter to the church in Philippi, also lived a holy must. His eyes were on one thing. There is only one passion in life worth your total pursuit. Remember that from last week? Paul considered... All his earthly achievements and all his earthly accomplishments as loss compared to what? Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Christ was Paul's all-consuming passion. That ought to be ours as well. I want to know him, Paul said in Philippians 3.10. I want to know him. That is where we left off last week. And if you were with us last week, you might have left with this feeling of, well, that's great for Paul, a super saint, but I can never measure up to such an incredible claim. I want to know him. It's a staggering statement. Paul's longing to know him personally and passionately and progressively is indeed inspiring. But is it too big for us to aspire to as well? Well, Paul gets real practical here as we come to these next verses as to what it means to really know him. He gets real practical in these verses 12 through 16. And no matter where you're at, loved ones, in your spiritual journey, I want to encourage you this morning, keep growing. Keep making spiritual progress. Keep moving forward. You see, joy comes to those who are progressing in their faith. Joy comes to those who are progressing in their faith. An old farmer one spring was hauling some logs and 
His wagon wheels sank down to the axles in mud. Try as he would, he could not get this wagon out. They were stuck deeply in the mud. And so defeated, he sat atop the logs, viewing his dismal situation. Soon a neighbor came along and he said, Well, Brother Jones, I see you're not making much progress, but you are well established. (laughs) Is that a description of our Christian life? You're well established, but you're not really making much progress. What good is it to be well established and not making much progress? Paul hits that nail right on the head here in in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Please look at it with me in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at this in a moment. Because what the message is to all of us is don't coast to the finish line. Don't coast to the finish line. We should never be satisfied with where we are at in our spiritual walk. Some Bible teachers have coined the phrase, Holy dissatisfaction. And if you leave this morning with a greater distaste for and a rejection of a comfortable Christianity, then this passage has done its work. How do we progress in our faith? How do we move towards this one thing of knowing Christ personally, passionately, and progressively? Well, there are three musts, three musts if we are to progress in our walk with Christ from this passage. First of all, we must humbly admit our need for growth. We must humbly admit our need for growth. Based on what we worked through last week and what Paul just said of his great big goal of wanting to know Christ, he adds something here just in case there is some misunderstanding. Look at verse 12. After Paul speaks of his all-out pursuit, that's the context, after Paul speaks of his all-out pursuit of Christ, he quickly adds this, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained, meaning received or acquired all this, or have been made perfect. And again in verse 13, he says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. To what is Paul referring? Complete Christ-likeness, absolute maturity, full personal knowledge of Christ. But do you see it? Paul lets us in on a little secret. He hadn't arrived. He hadn't arrived. How encouraging is that? If Paul the Apostle... The man who who just seemed to never have a bad day, he could always live above the circumstances by choosing joy, who saw suffering as only deepening his fellowship with Christ, who was singularly focused on knowing Christ. If he hadn't arrived, then there's hope for me. There is. Paul did not view himself as perfect, nor did he teach perfectionism. Paul knows he's still in process. As has been said, there's always room for improvement. It's the biggest room in the house. Yes. Paul hasn't arrived. No one has arrived. That person that you may tend to put up on a pedestal has flaws. As has been aptly said, the best of men 
are men at best. That person you admire, that person you seek to follow is a man or woman at best. They haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. And neither have I. So let's not pretend we have. Let's not, let's not give this impression we have it all together. The unbelieving world is tired of that. They're looking for authenticity, not perfection, because they know you're not. So don't come off that you, that, that, as if you've made it, as you look down on others' sin. You judge them for this and you judge them for that as if you're better than they. All it does is drive a wedge between us and the unbelieving world. Because either they find it all fake, which they're tired of, or they figure they could never be like that, so why bother to even examine the claims of Christianity? See, the man or woman of spiritual maturity is aware of what they are not. Paul had not yet received everything God had in store for him. He had a holy dissatisfaction with where he was at. And when we know what we are, and we know what we should be, we then realize this disparity between them, this gap. How are we going to fill that gap? Well, those dogs, those Judaizers that we met last week, they would bark out things like, well, you fill that gap by doing a lot of good stuff. They'd give you this list of, of what you need to do in order to arrive. Paul would say, no, none of that. I don't accept that. Press on, middle of verse 13. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on because I must humbly admit I need growth in my life. I haven't arrived, so I must keep pressing on. Now notice that his awareness that he hadn't arrived pushed him to keep running. He was neither complacent nor apathetic. In the movie, way back in the 80s, Chariots of Fire, there's a scene in which we find the runner Harold Abrams and the bleachers falling his race against Eric Little. He had lost the race, and he's sitting on the sidelines sulking. Abrams is done running. His girlfriend comes alongside of him, tries to console him, and encourage him to keep on running. And she says to him, if you can't take a beating, then perhaps it's for the best. And Abrams answers, I don't run to take beatings. I run to win. But if I can't win, I won't run. And she replies, if you don't run, you can't win. Nailed it. We might look at the claim of, of Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the example of Paul and figure, I can't win at that, so I don't even know if I should run. That is horrendous thinking from the pit of hell and really just becomes an excuse for not growing. The plan is progress, not perfection. God never meant for us to say, forget it then. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. I'm not going to run this race anymore. I'm going to shift into neutral, and I'm just going to kind of coast to heaven. 
Never meant that for us. And the danger is, the danger is, the longer we've been walking with Christ, the temptation is to remain right where we're at and stop growing and say, ah, good enough. When cello player Pablo Casals reached 95 years old, 95 years old, a young reporter came up to him and asked him, Mr. Casals, you're 95 years old and the greatest cellist that ever lived. Why do you still practice six hours a day? And Pablo answered, because I think I'm making progress. (laughs) Seriously? Puts me to shame. Dissatisfaction is an essential for spiritual progress. It's when we're satisfied with where we're at spiritually, when we figure there are no more spiritual heights to climb, that we will plateau individually and as a church. Press on. Are you making progress? Can you see changes in your life? Be encouraged. You're on the right track. Spiritual progress begins right here at this awareness. This must, we must remain humble. We must admit our continual need for growth. Secondly, if we're going to progress in our faith, if we're going to make spiritual progress, we must live by the from here on principle. We must live by the from here on in principle. From here on in principle. That's right here, loved ones, that many people are stuck. Because the middle of verse 13, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Now catch his resolve here. Catch his determination. Notice his single-minded focus. Because to say one thing I do is to suggest that there are many other things I choose not to do. But one thing I do. In the original language, it is only two words. It is simply one thing. The words I do have been added It reads, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing. One thing. We live in a world of many things. And our plate, or better put, our platter is full. Can we live our lives in countless pursuits? We are distracted by many things today in the evangelical church and in our lives when there's only one thing that matters, and he is Christ. We're distracted by our comforts. We're distracted by affluence. We're distracted by the American dream and chasing that. We're distracted by a lot of good things. Pursue Christ. Go hard after Christ. He is the one thing. He is the one thing that matters. Run after him hard with obsessive passion, taking as many people we can with us. So at the end of our lives, that one word, wasted, isn't written on top of the many things we have done as we spent so much time talking about last week. Let's make our lives count for God. It is that one thing that keeps Paul facing forward. For he says at the end of verse 13, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. 
we can always live from here on in. Forgetting. What is this forgetting all about? What does Paul mean by this? What does Paul not mean by this? And in what sense are we to forget? Well, there was an, an elderly man who loved playing golf. But as he got older, his vision was not so good, so he always took some younger buddies with him so, so who would watch where the ball, where he would hit the ball, and then they would go and tell him where the ball was because he couldn't see it. One day, his buddies did not show up. And it was a beautiful day for golf. And as he waited at the clubhouse, frustrated that he couldn't play a round of golf, another elderly man saw him sitting there and asked him what was going on. And the man explained his predicament. He said, I was really looking forward to playing golf today, but I don't see very well anymore, so I need someone to watch the ball after I hit it and tell me where it is. The other man was even older than he was, said, that's no problem. I have 20-20 vision. I'll gladly ride around with you. You just hit the ball. I'll watch it fly down the fairway, and I'll tell you where it lands. So they went out on the first tee. The old man hit the ball right down the center. He turned to his spotter, his new buddy, and he asked, did you see it? And the man replied, I saw it all the way until it stopped rolling. Great. Well, where did it go? The older man paused for a moment and said, I forgot. (laughs) That's what happens. We forget, right? I forget. I walk into a room and say, why did I come in this room? I forgot. Listen, that isn't what Paul is talking about. That isn't. When he speaks of forgetting what is behind, that's not what he's getting going after. He's not saying we're somehow to hit this erase button on everything of our past. I don't remember it anymore. Doesn't happen. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, if you had the power, wouldn't you like to erase certain memories of your past? I would. That isn't how life works. Oh, the joy robber of past memories. That situation in your life a month or or 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I know it's very real. There's no denying that. But make a choice to not let it dictate your steps. Don't give your past that kind of control. I mean, do you really want to look up someday and realize that you've made no spiritual progress because that thing or those people have been controlling your mind? Perhaps someone has wronged you in your past. I know it hurts, but you better get on with life. The past is over. Let it go. Nothing back there can be changed. Someone said it this way, I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginnings. Well, all our past mistakes and heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. Listen, you can from here on in. As the saying goes, today is the first day of the rest of your life. We can live from here on in, no matter what has been in our past. That can be true of our gloomy days, but it can also be true of our glory days. And this is more of what I believe Paul's getting at here. I think Paul is looking more to his post-conversion days than his pre-conversion days. 
He's already dealt with the pre-conversion past accomplishments and achievements, considering them all waste. I think he's looking back at his achievements as a follower of Christ, and he doesn't want to become complacent in those things. He doesn't want to become satisfied with what he has accomplished so he doesn't strain to what else God would have for him. I mean, we can, we can rest and, and we can relax on how far we have come and then slip into this coast to, to the finish line mentality. Paul says, I don't want that. I want to forget about that stuff because if I start thinking about that stuff too much, I won't press on. I won't strain ahead. Forget what's behind. Not just the ugly stuff, the good stuff, the glory days. Because when Paul was penning these words, he was likely 20 to 30 years into his walk with Christ. He had been a Christian for roughly 30 years, and he was still practicing the forgetting and straining principle. He wanted to press on. He wanted to know Christ more deeply, and he leaves us with no excuse for complacency. Have you grown complacent? Have you grown complacent? Have you found yourself resting on what you've done in the past? Have you relaxed on previous achievements and found yourself saying, well, that's good enough? Loved ones, press on. Press on. Look ahead. Look ahead. Many years ago, Roger Bannister set the record in the one-mile run. Two months later, Another man, John Landy, eclipsed the record by 1.4 seconds. So one month after that, the two of them matched up against each other for a historic race. Who was indeed going to be the fastest runner of the mile? As they moved into the final lap, Landy held the lead, and it looked as if he was going to win the race. But as he neared the finish line, he was haunted by the question. He did what he's not supposed to do as a runner. He asked the question, where's Bannister? So as he turned to look, Bannister ran right past him and won the race. Landy told the reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. In what ways are you living your life looking over your shoulder? Some of the most joyless people around are those who are living their lives looking over their shoulder. They're living back there. Somewhere to how things once were. The past is past, so let's get past it. Paul says, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. And Paul's using a metaphor from the sports world. My conclusion is is Paul was a sports fan. Certainly many lessons can be learned from the discipline of athletes. He draws from it all the time. He's using language from the Olympics here. And when Paul speaks of straining toward what is ahead, likely he has a picture of the chariot race in his mind. The chariots had a small platform with a wheel on each side. The driver had very little to hold on to as he raced around the course. And it was necessary for the driver to lean forward and strain every muscle and nerve to maintain balance and control the horses. He didn't. He was a god. 
for what are you leaning forward? God has a wonderful future for you. Will you face forward and reach for it? Forget what's back there. I mean, learn from it. Remember God's mercies and his grace and his provisions for us, yes. But forget what is behind. Strain toward what is ahead because the future holds hope. Face forward. So much more God has for us. Let's reach for it. Let's keep moving and keep progressing in our faith. We must humbly admit our need for growth if we're going to progress. Secondly, we must live by the from here on in principle if we're going to progress. And thirdly, and I'm only going to hit this one rather quickly. Thirdly, we must never let go of the gospel. We must never let go of the gospel. There are things we are to forget, but this is not one of them. We are not to forget the gospel. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean we move on from the gospel. Faithfully hold on to the gospel. Verse 12 says uh, he's pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Do you notice that? Take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Christ has laid hold of us. What does that mean? That means he has made us his own. How beautiful is that? I don't deserve it. If you're saved, he has made you his own. Imagine that. Linger there. He's made you his own. Why press on? Why forget and strain? Why progress in our walk with the Lord? It's all because Christ has taken hold of us and made us his own. You, a great sinner. Me, a great sinner. And God called us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, Scripture says. Christ pursued us. He's called our name. He's taken a hold of us. We are his. Why would we ever then be satisfied with where we're at? Why would we ever be okay with a comfortable Christianity? Isn't he worth pursuing? Isn't he worth going hard after? Press on. Strain. Jesus is of surpassing worth one thing. Paul's a one thing guy. Surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Never being satisfied, but pressing ahead. Are you a one thing guy? Are you a one thing woman? Are you a one thing young person? What are you most passionate about? I mean, if I asked people around you, closest to you, what would they say you're most passionate about? What's your one thing? Keep moving towards that. Please, please don't become complacent. Know him personally, passionately, and progressively. Now, let me mention one other piece to this matter of progressing in the Lord. It's found in these final two verses of this section, verses 15 and 16. I'm not going to have time to unpack it, but look at verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. What things? The things he's been talking about. If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. What does that mean? Give other people room to grow. 
Give them space. I don't have to be their God and Holy Spirit in their life. Give them space. God will make clear to you. Not Brian, not someone else, not my spouse, God. Okay. I said I wasn't going to unpack that too much, and I almost got going there. Verse 16, because this is the one I really want to look at. Verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Do you see what that's saying? Here's the specific application for us this morning. I I want to help you see what that application is, what verse 16 is saying to our life. How do we apply what we've just been talking about? This is it. This is the application. Think one thing. Think one thing. Sometimes we leave a sermon and we think dramatically of what needs to occur in our lives. Oh, we think big. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to go to the mission field. Da, 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 da. Maybe all good things. I'm just saying, don't do that. What one thing can I put into practice this morning? What is one change you can make in order to pursue the one thing that matters the most? Don't swing for the fence. Babe Ruth in his era set a record for the most home runs. But he also set the record for the most strikeouts. Why? He'd swing for the fence. That's often our approach to the Christian walk. That's often our approach after we hear a sermon. Swing for the fence, and we leave here ready to hit that home run. And then we find by Tuesday we've struck out ten times. We go, forget it. Live more by Lou Gehrig's philosophy of his at-bats. It was get on base. Get on base. He said, if you're playing on a team, it's important that you get on base. Apply what you know. Start somewhere. Ask, Lord, what must I do? What is the one thing I must do with this passage of Scripture? Is it to humbly admit there's a need to grow in this one area over here? Is it to finally forget what is back there and to begin to live from here on in? Do I need to come back to the cross and remember that moment when Christ called me and took hold of my life? What is the one thing? Do I need to get back to Scripture reading? Do I need to take a hard look at the use of my time? Do I need to take a look at the investment of my finances? What is one way I can align myself with this passage? Think one thing. What is one change You can make in order to pursue this one thing that matters the most, Jesus Christ. Keep growing. Keep pressing on. Keep moving forward. Keep straining ahead, loved ones. Please. Reminded of a story I heard decades ago about a mountain climber who fell to his death as he struggled toward the summit. I think it was in the Swiss Alps. Months after his fall, friends and fellow climbers returned and ascended the mountain until they reached the place where their friend had plunged to his death. And there they left a sign with a simple message on it. And I was told it's still there. I don't know. I'm not climbing that anytime soon. But there's a sign there with a simple message that says, He died climbing. He died climbing. 
Paul's life in Christ was always an uphill climb. But like the Savior he so passionately served, he didn't know the meaning of the word quit. He died climbing, not coasting. And as Christians, we all have an upward call, a glorious and supreme goal to know him personally, passionately, and progressively. But the climb is sometimes steep, and it's sometimes hard. I ask you, have you thought about turning back? Have you thought about turning back? He thought about saying, nah, not worth it. God's counsel is clear. Don't quit. Press on. You won't fail so long as you die climbing. It's always too soon to quit. Press on. Press on. As a hymn writer put it, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Ah, that's it. Hymn 399. Let's close with that. 399. 